Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palanker. Here at Media Path, we look anywhere and everywhere to find content that we think you'll find enjoyable. Even if it's wrapped in a hefty bag in a Mar-a-Lago tool shed, we will find it. We highlight some recently released items that we think are worth your time. And then we get to the exciting part, talking with guests that we so admire, like singer-songwriter John Sebastian. John and the Love and Spoonful helped shape the rock revolution of the 60s and have put Honestly, some of the most beautiful songs of that era out into the universe. Can't wait to talk to John in just a few minutes. But first, Wheezy, what do you have? I know you've, you've, had, a, you've had a very tumultuous day today, and I want you to share it with us. I had an interesting day, Fritz, and I wanted to just take a moment to celebrate the YouTube teachers. <laughs> okay. Because the YouTube teachers are really, they're just of service. So this morning, I, I tried to use my Keurig. This is a Keurig is like the easy bake oven. Yeah, it's like the easy bake oven of coffee makers. So I know (laughs) I understand already that you you have no sympathy for me if I'm using a Keurig. But the Keurig said to me, it spoke. It said, "Back off! This thing's about to blow. There's water (laughs) pressure that we cannot contain. We don't want to be a party to what's about to happen to you." (laughs) So of course I go to YouTube because that's what you do. They say, refer to the instructions. You think I I save instructions in an age of technology? No, No, because I go to YouTube. So there's a nice gentleman teaching me. Did you know that what's involved with cleaning out your Keurig is that you you will need a paperclip? Wow. So we live in a very high-tech age and a very high-tech world, and yet you still... Have somehow you, you think have, they give you a paperclip with the Keurig when you buy they it? They may have, and I threw it out with the instruction manual. So now I've got my Keurig on its side. I'm performing surgery. I'm apologizing. I'm saying this may pinch, but uh, it didn't work the first time around. So I was I went I spent the first few hours of my day for its coffeeless. So uh, I'm glad I wasn't around to see that. Right, and and then <laughs> I and then after I got the show ready, I tried it again paperclip apparently there's a needle that punctures your little pod Mm -hmm. and then around that needle there's like little holes that you're supposed to put your paperclip so if you've performed the surgery at home and you have any additional tips because when i finally got coffee the keurig was sort of saying to me i don't really feel like it because the water was just kind of like i'm sort of coffee i can't promise you anything i told you i was about to explode and now you still want coffee so, yeah, we're open to uh, Keurig tips, and we're grateful to all of the YouTube, all of the YouTube instructors that make our lives so much easier. I, I think it's a scam. The YouTube instructors are a scam. It's a way that companies <laughs> can forego the responsibility of having a customer service department. They just say, look it up on YouTube. And I, <laughs> I had an experience like that, too. I have a wireless a thermostat in my home mm-hmm. that requires tabulation and some adjustment and it depends you have a remote and you have it put it somewhere in your house and so my, mine was broken and i called this uh, uh, home heating and air conditioning place and they said we don't carry that brand but i'll tell you they have great instructional videos uh, on on, uh, on youtube on how to fix it yourself and i i i, I empathize so much with john's struggle on getting on the air today because that's the way i am with everything technological and i went to youtube and i gave up when it said do you have an arc welder and i said no i'm not i'm not wow so i needed a paper clip and you needed an arc i know all right well i i empathize with you maybe we'll get some great suggestions have you been watching any yes okay i'm i'm really i'm I'm, i I know i'm going to open a large can of worms please entitled harry and megan uh currently streaming on netflix and hulu the debate about this show 
is like a debate between Adam Schiff and Marjorie Taylor Greene. People are split, and the rift is mainly yeah. between the Americans and the Brits. This is a six-part series. Three have dropped the other two, the other three, uh, December 15th. The series was designed by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to tell their real story, countering the false narratives portrayed in the British press. It starts out with how they met, Megan's acting career, Harry's renegade early life, their engagement, the nuclear bomb of British tabloid coverage starting only 12 days after it was announced they were dating. And UK critics have uniformly panned this series. Many Brits feel like the two wanting to resign from the firm, as it's called, was nothing short of treason, an assault on the family. How how dare you? Some former British leaders even said they should not be allowed to attend the king's coronation. Get over it, Lord Snoot. Unstiffen your <laughs> upper lip. I stand firmly on the side of Harry. The film looks at his early age, dabbling in recreational drugs, being a rebel, unlike William, who seemed to buy into the family program from the start. From the day he was born, Harry was assaulted by the British press. He's known nothing different ever in his life. Then he met and got serious with Meghan, and it became really, really different. And the difference was race. The Tatlers and the tabloids were relentless about Megan's mixed race. Her mother black, her father white. Headlines like straight out of Compton. She wasn't born in, or raised or lived in Compton. Princess in the hood. She was not raised near the hood. She lived on the Wilshire corridor. Brutal and scary. Eventually, things intensified to even death threats. Princess Diana died in 1997, being chased by the paparazzi, allegedly. Harry saw this nightmare beginning to replay itself with his wife. He bowed out of the royal life simply to protect his wife and family. My sympathies are with Harry. It took amazing guts to quit the firm, to give up his identity, to be iced by a judgmental family. This is the greatest example of the adage, you can't Pick your family. And I would say that Diana somewhere right now is very pleased with her son's activities. Yes, I, I'm watching it as well, Fritz. I'm, I'm obsessed like any good uh, royal watcher. The thing for me was that it was a, I was wondering if, if the Megan, the, the reaction to Megan alongside Brexit, alongside Trump, alongside people feeling like whatever is in the back of their mind, they can... They can put it on their lips and put it on the Internet, whatever kind of racist undertones. I mean, even Harry talks about how we all have um, bias, unrecognized bias, or we all, you know, because we're all born one person and we see the world through that person's eyes. But, you know, he even admits that he has some kind of he needs to keep learning. I thought that was really honest of him. He was talking about his own racial bias early in his life. But I think that was the way it was brought up, the environment in which he was brought up. But why can't we all just continue learning? What, yeah. what is so yeah. threatening about that? Yep. And so, yeah, I'm a fan, and uh, they're also my Santa Barbara neighbors. So, you know, if they need anything, you know, we're, we're there. <laughs> We've got a lawnmower. You could have called him about the curry machine and saved yourself a lot of Maybe uh, he had problems. a paperclip, and I would have been right over. <laughs> Probably. Oh, is it my turn to talk about yes, something? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We're too hairy strong. 
I'm just going to make that proclamation. To Harry Strong this week, I'm recommending the documentary Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something, which I found on Amazon. It's playing on a bunch of places, including iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Award-winning singer-songwriter Harry Chapin, the master story song stylist who brought us Taxi and Cats in the Cradle, used his time and talent on this earth to address world hunger and poverty. His efforts inspired, enriched, and saved the lives of millions of people. This film features appearances by Pat Benatar, Sir Bob Geldof, Billy Joel, Robert Lamb, Daryl DMC McDaniels, Kenny Rogers, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen, and Harry Belafonte bringing our our Harry total to three if you are keeping score at home. We also hear from Harry's wife and his siblings and his kids, all very young still, because when we lost Harry in 1981, he was just 38 years old. Much like this week's guest, John Sebastian, Harry Chapin grew up in a musically gifted, artistically expressive Greenwich Village family. And just like John, he was a son of a well-known musician. Harry Chapin was driven to create and to serve. He could only relax when he was in motion. He performed half of his shows for charity, attempting to both donate his time and serve as an example and an inspiration for us to do the same. Harry gave so much of himself to critical causes that he took precious time from his family, but he couldn't stop. It was how his engine ran. And Harry did not limit the donation of his efforts to charity events. He also founded the grassroots organizations Why Hunger and Long Island Cares. And he spent time in D.C. lobbying and forming alliances with politicians. He advocated for and was appointed to the Presidential Commission on Hunger under Jimmy Carter in 1977. When he had, he gave. And inspired by Harry Chapin, we at MediaPath will be using our voice to partner with worthy causes. Who needs our help to keep helping this week, Fritz? Well, I'm so glad you're giving me the opportunity to talk about an agency that I have been involved with for many years. I'm on the board of directors. I mean, we're into the holidays, and in the spirit of the season, you might be looking for a way to offer help to folks who need it. Well, I want to tell you about the Children's Burn Foundation. In just an instant, a child's life can be shattered by a serious burn. Without access to comprehensive care, that child and their family will suffer devastating physical, financial, and emotional harm. The Children's Burn Foundation provides child burn survivors and their families comprehensive care from surgeries all the way to psychological support. We also offer burn prevention and education for both kids and parents. These are kids from all over the world. We provided support for child burn victims from the war in Syria and are currently doing for the conflict in Ukraine. And this time of year, we like to ensure that child burn survivors are able to escape the stress of their surgeries and treatments and find happiness and normalcy. So every year, 500 child burn survivors and their families gather together and they have festivities and receive food and drinks and toys from very generous donors. We would love for you, if you're going to make a donation this holiday season to help people out, this is a great look. Please go to their website and learn more about it. It's really very inspirational. Go to childburn.com dot org and you can learn all about their heroic work and we hope you'll push the donate now button thank you for letting me talk about it wonderful thank you fritz for sharing that with us let's introduce our guest i can't wait to do this i've just been an admirer of this guy for many years we're very excited he's a singer and a songwriter he's a harmonica player and for those of us that played the harpsichord in high school he finally made that instrument hip he and his band the loving spoonful have given us some of the most memorable 
memorable songs of the 60s. Do you believe in magic? You didn't have to be so nice. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Summer in the City. And of course, the huge hit, Welcome Back, Cotter. My favorite heartbreaking song, we were talking about it before the show, Darlin' Be Home Soon, Melts My Heart, and Nashville Cats. Such a clever song. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2008. Their first seven hits were top 10 on Billboard. They did that during the Blitzkrieg of the British Invasion. He received four Grammy Awards, 38 ASCAP Awards. We don't have time for any more accolades because we're almost out of time now. (laughs) Please welcome the very talented John Sebastian. John, so nice to have you with us. And thank you very much. It's terrific to join you all. I, I want to say that uh, I like it that even when we do one of these affairs, that there's somebody with a cell phone. Of course, of course. There's like an extra producer here. That is our producer. Well, how else do you know what happened? <laughs> okay, I won't make fun then. Oh, yeah, no, of course no, you should okay. make She's fun. <laughs> of course yeah. you should. Anyway, the spoonful. Um, was a combination of roots music and pop and country and blues. And as I mentioned, you were able to be successful during the Beatles era, which was daunting. And you made a great... Beatles, con- Beach the Beatles. Boys. Yeah. yeah. All that. Motown. I, I, I was just thinking in terms I'll of the go British with invasion. Three, those three. Yeah, Beatles, absolutely. Beach, boys, and you made a great comment about that. You said, we were grateful to the Beatles for reminding us of our rock and roll roots but we wanted to cut out the English middleman and get down to making this music with an American band, which is a great way to describe what you do. You know, the Brits introduced us to our music blues. You know, the Beatles, the Stones, Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin all introduced us to the blues. And, and I, I, I just love that comment. What was that era like? What, what, was, it, was there pressure on you to produce at that time? <laughs> you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I pretty well. It, I mean, there was no pressure until I had a successful record. There you go. Uh, logically enough. Uh, so uh, when that happened, uh, what it was was the uh, com- combined wonderfulness of having an audience cheering you on, but also to have a skilled Ganif telling you, John, we need another record. <laughs> that that, that uh, do you believe in magic? It's it's going down on the charts now, you know. Yeah, I think we're gonna need another one. You gotta be just like that. <laughs> let's let's go back for a moment to your early childhood because it sounds like the childhood that we would all want. You grow up with all of these fascinating people around you. Your godmother is Vivian Vance. Eleanor Roosevelt lives across the hall. Burl Ives and Woody Guthrie are coming over. I just want to feel for a moment what that was like for a child to grow up with all those wonderful really? influences. Well, you have to remember that I I didn't come with all of those preconceptions of any of these people. So all I was doing was reacting like, here's a guy. He came over to our house. Oh, he can play the guitar. Mm-hmm. This is wonderful. You know, or, or Woody Guthrie is staying for a week because I think he got kicked out of his house. And uh, I'm listening to him. And I remember, I was about five, remember, I'm really little. But I listened to Woody Guthrie. And I say to myself, not as good as my dad. Wow. I love because that. Your dad was a classical harmonica I was player listening, and composer. I was listening to six to eight hours of practicing a day. Wow. 
and uh, that that's a greater skill. Uh, you know, songwriting is its own great skill, but when we get into music, even a five-year-old can say, oh, yeah, that that's more magical. Now, I have a harmonica question uh, because everyone gets a harmonica when they're a kid and most of us do not learn how to play it because you 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 realize that you're, when you're blowing in it's one note when you're blowing out it's another note and then you tap out because you're confused. <laughs> now are they is each harmonica in a different key? In a different key? Like when you buy a harmonica is it in like the key of C and then you if the song was in a different key you'd need to use a different harmonica? Yeah, uh, yeah. The answer to your question is yes. That especially if you're playing the instrument that I play, which is a very simple children's diatonic harmonica, uh, that is very. Uh, that's a that's a very straightforward do re mi fa sol la ti do instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, when you uh, go to an instrument that my father and Matt Honer had a, a great effect on improving. You come to the what's called the 64 chromatic, which is a chromatic instrument so that it goes ba da 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 da. You know, it's really, really half hats and stuff like that. Yes. So how did your father well, go about improving it? I think this is so, fascinating. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought here, which is those diatonic harmonicas, I need to, I need 11 of those to be able to, to step on a stage where I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Okay. But that a chromatic harmonica and add my dad, he can play in any key quite comfortably. Wow. Did he play in a Philharmonic, being a classical harmonica player, or was... No, uh, but he did play with the Philharmonic uh, at, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, I'm not sure which of several compositions uh, he uh, we're talking about. So wow. where, did he, where did he get most of his work? Where, where was he needed? Well... Dad began a successful musical career pretty early. He was 16, and he was already the soloist, the Philadelphia Marching Band. Uh, uh, the Mummer's Parade. The most famous composer of marches. Oh, John Philip Sousa? John Philip Sousa, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so anyway, this was uh, John Philip Sousa's harmonica orchestra. Wow. And Dad was the soloist. Oh, my God. Wow. That's amazing. So that, that was where that began. But, uh, but Dad had several years as a, uh, a, a, I don't know quite how you'd put it. Uh, he was very handsome and he could work. Uh, all of these uh, clubs in 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 the village, particularly, and uh, eventually he became uh, a, a a sort of a darling of the State Department because he could work with one pianist, and and he would 
be glad to play in an African village where the only thing you, you, you were just standing on where the dirt had been really beaten down by feet. Oh and that was your stage. So he, he played there and he played Cambodia as it was uh, 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 making its Vietnam transition. And, and uh, uh, I used to have a, uh, a great big, sign that it, that said his name uh and i think it was in in vietnamese but it read john se ba chan it oh, was cool. really oh, wow. it was very phonetically yeah. done yeah wow That's well your, your your family is just rife with talent your father was a classical harmonica player and your mother wrote for radio remarkable so, woman so and, is it uh, is it too much of a stretch to say you got your music from your dad and your storytelling from your mom you, you could certainly say that and you could also say that if i didn't come up with something good <laughs> i was really an idiot <laughs> no pressure but go for it but you swang for the bleachers and uh, probably everybody who knew you all of these people that were mingling around like Eleanor Roosevelt probably thought that you were such a clever boy, I'm sure. But I want to hear a Vivian Vance story. Was she a good godmother? Did, what did she get you? Did, was there any Were there any good gifts involved here? <laughs> Vivian Vance was the best godmother that a guy could have. First of all, she loved me, and I think part of it was that she did not have children, and I was sort of a stand-in as her best friend's Aww. son. Oh, that's so and crazy. And so, so I did hear a lot of uh, stories. I will tell you one, which was, I guess I was about 11, and Viv... Uh, had called up and said, "Hey, Janie, I'm I'm coming to to visit you out there in Huntington, Long Island." And uh, she she shows up, and uh, immediately out of the back seat, she produces a kid shotgun. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, and this shotgun is uh, really really works well, and there just happens to be gravel uh under underfoot right there right when she hands it to me <laughs> of course i put the gravel i pump it up and i hit it and at that point i hear my mother going viv i can't believe you did this you know how we feel about weaponry and teaching children uh, that this is a good idea and there's a pause and she says, ah, Jane, you know that when he grows up, he's going to like me better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And was that true? Yeah. A little bit. You know, bit. Uh, your father started or, or played at least early in his career in Greenwich Village, as did you at the start of the folk revival era. And you got to see people like Lead Belly and Mississippi John Hurt and all the guys that were responsible for the start of the folk revival. But starting in the same spot where your father worked seems to be a magical connection that you must have had with your father. Was it hard to do that or was it was it inspirational? I I, I was certainly inspired by... Uh, listening to somebody uh, play that well, and I was inspired, and I was listening every minute when he would do things like 
instructional records. There were several John Sebastian teaches you the harmonica type <laughs> records, and I would I heard them all, but it, there was not a direct connection about the harmonica at that point. Uh, Dad was was just wonderful about it because there was a point when I went to him and said, Dad, you know, every everybody, when I play the harmonica, they, they want to know if I'm going to be like you. And I I can't be like you. I, you know, I, I just, I already knew that at like six. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. And, and he was so good at cooling me out. He said, look, you're going to play the way you play. People say that because it's an easy thing to say. Mm-hmm. Don't let it get you down. Oh. And so I, I really took that to heart. And I think that uh, so, I mean, <laughs> I really never had anybody comparing me to my dad because we were in such different games. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first couple of records that I uh, was an accompanist on, I made sure that I used an alias. Oh. Uh, yeah, because I didn't want anybody thinking, oh, that great harmonica <laughs> player, he's slumming now. What happened? Because your names this are so similar. Guy. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. just, you're a junior, right? I mean, not not really. I have a middle name, and my dad was quite anxious that I not be a junior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did he support your transition to the dark side of rock and roll? (laughs) You know, he was quite unsure, but he was not. It was very different than my pals who were also playing music whose dad might be a butcher or a baker or whatever and and have no frame of reference for that this could be a successful avenue mm-hmm. that the the gratification that you would get would be a component mm-hmm. of this success that it isn't all just oh i could make this much money doing this uh, you know my dad had a lot to teach mm-hmm. and tell me when you recognize that that uh, songwriting would be something unique that you could bring you know, that started quite by accident. Um, I think I was going to Blair Academy and we were doing a Shakespeare play and there's a there's a, a song in there that they just refer to the rain, the rain, it raineth every day. And I realized that if I used some folk chords that I knew I could come up with a way to sort of sing that song in in the middle of the play and and it it worked and uh, so then cut to I'm working in a little jug band and uh, it's what 63 or so and uh, I, I'm, I'm playing in this band and we're learning these tunes from the 30s and 40s and some of these jug band tunes are, are, are they're pretty rough uh, 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 as far as the language and uh, so there were times when We'd go, gee, well, we can't say that. And so the next thing that would happen is I'd end up sitting with a 
yellow pad and going, well, we could say this. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly there were several of these kind of tunes because I was now in this little jug band and there were these opportunities to just like flick, flex your muscles for a fraction of a second and then done. And so really that was the beginning doing that regularly. Then by then some time or another, I said, well, I, I'm going to write a song. I, I love high heeled sneakers. So I'm going to write it a lot like that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And and it was, it was called good time music. And it ended up that Cass Elliott liked it. And uh, I ended up, uh, uh, let me uh, let my dog out. Oh, yeah, well, sure. Go ahead. I just love the sound of his voice. Oh, he yeah. sounds so familiar, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. okay. I remember hearing that announcement at Woodstock, and that you couldn't see him, but you could hear him. Right. Was... I think at Woodstock, he also got up to let his dog out. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't make the film, but it happened. Hey, John, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I've been fascinated my whole life with that whole Greenwich Village scene and yeah, always wanted to great. go... Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it was the folk revolution, and, and it was also sort of this growing ground for early comedians, Woody Allen and Bill Cosby and David Fry right. and all these guys. I mean, what a cool time to be in that part of town. Can you describe the feeling and what it was like? And, and some of your classmates during that era, Dylan was just getting his legs then, and some of the other people you worked with. Well, it was a very, very rich time. And I mean, you mentioned two comedians. And I have to tell you, when I first heard Richard Pryor, and that was only because I was beginning to be allowed in the back of several of these clubs, mm -hmm. Richard Pryor was doing a Bill Cosby routine. Oh. He didn't have any material yet. Wow. And, and he was uh, listening to Cosby and then go to a, a, a less visible club and do the, the act. And I actually knew another another pal of mine who's a pot seller who pretty much had the same the same strategy. Uh, you know, he, he, he'd either go listen to to uh, Cosby or, or he'd go downtown and and. Uh, uh, you know, there were there were several comedians at that point that were. Uh, yeah, no, you know, nobody made any money. It was past the hat, and you hoped you made a couple of bucks on any were, given it was night. Just a cover act. Yeah. Well, there was a division uh, in there uh, because there were really those two types of uh, strategies to have a club, and and one was an actual club where you were actually paying people, and the other was getting around the cabaret laws. And that was done by saying, well, we can't pay you, but we can't pass the hat. We can, we can, we got a little, little basket and we'll, we'll pass it uh, at the end of your set. Well, when you went on for the first time, according to Wikipedia, you then had to get off and regroup and replace your drummer. So t tell us a, that story. Had to replace our drummer. Well, the story on Wikipedia is that your first performance was not maybe as well-tuned as it needed to be. And then you, then oh, Joe, uh, Joe uh, Butler joins, and then you, you take another go at it. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Is that, pretty, uh, is that kind right. of how it happened? It's, it's a kind of, it's in quotations, but it'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Well, what, what's your memory of getting on stage for the first time and how that felt? 
Well, uh, you know, Zalyanovsky and I already had a kind of a uh, a bond by the time that we started doing that, and we were actually playing as a duo, you know, in these little folk clubs, just sort of going, what happens if we get on stage together? And what we found quickly was that Yanovsky was the show. All, all I had to do was keep the time and try to remember the damn song and stuff like that. So that was a, that was really key. Um, we we met Steve Boone through Skip Boone, his older brother, uh, who was a uh, member of a group called the Sellouts, which were making fun of the uh, folky folkies. Because we were all in the village, and there was only one rock and roll band, and that was the sellouts. And because you know they're going, yeah, you know we're, you know, you guys are are uh, so so uh, traditional and everything. So it was a, a kind of a it was a comic uh, situation. I see. So is that how the uh, the Love and Spoonful was born out of those? You just added guys gradually, and it became the group. In, in- yeah, yeah. It, it 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 took it probably took four or five months of looking around, and then we did work for about a half a year, very very steadily, uh, eight shows a night. Uh, Holy and, cow! How long were the and, sets? About 45 minutes. Holy cow, that's incredible. Wow. And uh, uh, no, we got that. So that so that's when when the birds came to town and they heard us. Michael Clark comes over to us. He goes, man, you guys are really good. I wish I was in your band because we're we're in a band. But like, it's not like your band. (laughs) I was like. Hey man, you know in New York we don't start with the big confession here. This is <laughs> not really the way things operate very often. So it's just a matter of stage time and just working it out until you get until you get going. Well, yeah, that was the difference was that uh, Jim McGuinn, Roger McGuinn had had a lot of background, but as a band they had very little mm-hmm. at that time. Well, I'm I'm very interested in group dynamics and when when idealistic young kids form a group and have a hit record, it's like two people having a baby. You're forever linked, but then the pressures mount and you grow in different directions and as a songwriter, you have maybe a bit more control of the legacy, but talk for a moment about the experience of growing into your grown-up self or your grown-up selves while you're inside a successful band. Tell us how that feels. It seems like it's a lot. Well, I think I had a tremendous amount of help from my father at this stage mm-hmm. because he was the first guy to say, yeah, everything's going great, but here's the thing you have to know, which is that audiences keep shifting. It's a slow tectonic process, but they're always moving and they will move past you. Mm-hmm. So. Be prepared for that moment, you know, save your money and and don't get bent out of shape when they go, oh, well, what? You turned into a sensitive singer-songwriter. Uh, we're not interested <laughs> in that, you know. Right. Uh, so the, all of these various stages, uh, I, I think it really ha- helped to have my dad's input on that. 
Oh, yeah. Wow. You know, I, I've wanted to ask you this question ever since we talked to Felix Cavalieri, who was fantastic. Uh, he said that he and the Rascals were in charge of Lower Manhattan, and you and the Spoonful were in charge of Upper Manhattan. <laughs> what did that mean? <laughs> well, that's a joke that we began to have after, uh, ex- you know, being exposed to each other. I would go up to the 40s, and they would be playing... <laughs> It's some semi-nasty topless club. And the thing was that at that stage, it was Felix and Dino Mm -hmm. and nothing else. And it was, you opened the door to this club and it was like a train coming at you. It was like huge. And I remember me and Yanofsky going, I think we better practice. Wow. (laughs) That's what I think. And uh, yeah, and and so and and uh, well, Felix and I remember we're both Italian, and we sort of come from that sort of semi-Italo-American. <laughs> in Italy, they call it Italo-Americanacho. <laughs> it's not flattering, uh, and uh, you know, so we've we've both had this background of uh of uh, it, uh italian american uh everything parenting good food all of that and and then also i understood the the uh the rascals weird thing <laughs> i don't know how to explain it i said this is an italian thing when suddenly they're having problems that one guy doesn't want to talk to the other guy mm-hmm. i said you know this like a sounds typical like italian this, family problems this sounds like two guys in the piazza you know <laughs> it really does yeah but now when you've got all this pressure and then the music industry is is run by grown-ups and you guys are a bunch of kids trying to figure out not just how to m- create great music and create a great presentation but also how to deal with financial issues as a cohesive unit with all of the same opinion and that's just not going to happen as kids continue growing up so how did you guys work out what to do did you have a good manager did you had your dad but did you have good guidance for the band well yeah i i do think uh the dad and mom uh thing really helped me um and we did have a good manager he was still learning and he apologizes whenever we get together that he didn't know more when we started but the fact was that uh bob cavallo who went on to be to run walt disney records and then uh, before that he he was uh the, the president of warner brothers then uh, uh, uh of the record company and then uh uh uh, uh, so his uh, his advice became more and more sound as time went on. Uh, and we also had Eric Jacobson as our producer. And that was that can't be minimized. Uh, you know, people think, oh, you know, the Beatles and, and their guy. Well, this was our guy. And uh, Jacobson had a pretty darn good idea of what this love and spoonful idea was all about. Mm 
He'd been in a bluegrass band himself, very urban background, kind of a bluegrass band in Chicago. And uh, so so uh, uh, he he was already uh, somebody was cu- curious about music and, and curious about all varieties. So. Now, you know, he wasn't shocked when we put down electric instruments and took up a long neck five string banjo and put it in a rock and roll tune. You guys or were an so, auto harp for that matter. You were so eclectic, and that seemed to be what you what you celebrated was all these different types and presenting it to to folks so that they could have a taste. And, I agree with that a hundred percent. And also, that's the reason why nobody copied you. Your sound is so distinct. In the first four notes of a song, when it comes on the radio, you know what you're listening to. It was a very distinct song. You know, this is funny to hear you say this because I remember when we would we'd have finished maybe one project and be on to the other, and immediately the first thing that any of us would say was, "Okay, we want to sound." like a different band uh here yanovsky you take my les paul i'll take your guild <laughs> thunderbird no really we yeah. used to do that because we didn't have multiple guys we didn't have hal blaine and company you know doing our dirty work for us we had to figure out a way to do it ourselves oh then your voice came on and there was no question about who you were listening to so that's very interesting yeah but- that's that's funny. I guess I'm going to ask so. you a very esoteric question here, but it's uh, something that I've thought about. So during the folk revival, say the early 60s, um, the folk music became the voice of opposition against what was going on in the world. Vietnam, the civil rights movement, crooked politics. And the youth of America were just trying to carve out their own path. And artists like uh, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Joan Baez and Bob Dylan... It just seems like in our dark world right now, it would be the perfect time for a musical voice to step forward and sort of represent this era, but there doesn't seem to be one. What do you think that is? Uh, we got stupider. <laughs> well, uh, we don't have civics. We, we've had to chicken out of, of teaching our children civics because we're also, oh, I'm from this side and you're from that side. And so we can't agree on what we're going to. critical race theory. That ends that discussion. You we're know? teaching I, them I, cynics. I, I, I know. <laughs> cynics, that's very good. But wow. I also think it's because we're not all looking in the same direction. You know, there's yeah. no there's not a central uh town square the where there was with a rate a few radio stations in town a few the the chart was the chart if you were on the top 40 everybody knew those songs and i mean everybody your mom knew the songs your your neighbor knew the songs everybody was listening to the same music we're just there's too many places to look so it's hard to find that one leader that can that can take us out of the wilderness and lyrics seem to have much more impact back then you know you, yeah. you listen to what people were saying well his lyrics were not oh. just um phenomenal they were also clever and fun and uh and true so it's like you you did not take the easy pathway to any kind of rhyming schemes or any kind of thoughts that you were conveying they're all really well thought out and clever and they and they hold up they're as fun to listen to now uh, you know as they were the moment people first heard them you agree? Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> I, I, I do have to say that a lot of this came uh, just like a casual idea 
he smokes a roach and he gets a little idea and it becomes a song. Maybe, you know, it's not, it, it isn't uh, really the, you know, I, I, yes, I did feel a certain pressure, but I was not, uh, I, I, I had never responded well to pressure. That's why I was such a bad student. Uh, yeah, so so that really was a, 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 a fairly big component. Yeah, I think the lyrics are really stand out. That would be the one thing that I would say identifies a John. So I would say parenthetically yeah. that a lot of these uh, tunes, their beginnings didn't really come from me. They came from me trying to get Yanovsky to laugh. <laughs> See, because so interesting. Zalman was the funny guy. So uh, I saw my job, especially when I was working on a tune like Pow or a tune like Nashville Cats. It just, you know, first of all, uh, okay, we're going to talk about these guys and we're going to say so. Let's start with a really awkward number. <laughs> okay, that'll make Yanovsky laugh. Good. Okay, 16,800. Yeah, because that doesn't sound like a, a, a rehearsed number. What was and the exact number? 1,652. And it has to be five times that now because the entire music industry has moved. Oh, oh, but, oh but there's enough... Are you, nerds talk, are you talking about the number of guitar pickers off. in Nashville? Yes. All right, we have to identify what the number in <laughs> signifies. So <Yes>. look, <laughs> so there are enough nerds <laughs> uh, that are interested in this kind of stuff that uh, I got a call once from a guy who said, you know, uh, uh, you know that song Nashville Cats you wrote? He says, uh, you know, that number wasn't that far off. <laughs> I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, we actually went to the files in the Nashville oh, Musicians wow. Union and we counted the guitar players. Oh. And apparently I was like three, four hundred within like three or four hundred off. Not bad. Yeah, like a couple of guys had just moved in and some others moved out and like you were pretty close. But the whole industry, not even countries moving down there now. That's just like the place to record now, apparently. Am I right about that? Boy, oh boy. It's a small Uh, town. It's a small music town for that. So your show Folk Rewind is uh, airing coincidentally this week. Uh, uh, It's been three weeks in a row. Uh, on PBS. A, lot, a lot of white guys on that show. I'm telling you, and it's in black and white, thing, so it's startling. No, no. When I when I finished it, because you know, I mean, I I was not a creator there. I was a no. talking head. What year was that? So I did I did the thing, and uh, as I was leaving, I said to the the two producers, I said, you know, <laughs> black folks were doing a lot of wonderful things during this period too, and boy oh boy, had they managed to skip it. Couldn't slip Odetta in there or anybody. It just felt like it was maybe ten years. If it, I just watched it last night, it felt like it was maybe ten years old. What what year was that done? I, shit, I don't know. <laughs> it could be because you know uh, one of the things about that was that was an afternoon in 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 uh, not Philadelphia. It was in Pennsylvania. Uh, anyway. 
It, yeah, it was Pittsburgh. Because it was T.J. Yeah. Uh, Lebinsky who was the producer of that show. And you had Barry McGuire. I'm not sure when he passed. So there's a lot of cool stuff. Oh, I love the clips. The, the oh, clips man. from... Oh, man. Let the dog in here. I mean, the, okay. re, the dog's ready to come back in. The reunions <laughs> are awesome, but the clips are just phenomenal. No, I know they are. They're such a poor, you know, quaintly poor quality. But I want to tell him a story about... Uh, I just watched it again the other night, and I laughed because the Kingston Trio was on there. Oh, I got to tell you a story about the Kingston Trio, John. My mother, yeah. who is uh, is an uber Caucasian, right? She used an to buy uber, me an uber white woman from suburban yes. Philadelphia. Didn't know any colored people personally. She's fancy. Yeah, she was fancy. So she used to buy me every single Kingston Trio album, not so much for the music, but she thought that they looked like clean-cut boys on the album covers with their button-down shirts and their flat-top hairstyles. Yeah, yeah. And I was happy to have them because they had classic songs like Ride on the MTA and Tom Dooley, but secretly, I was spending my allowance money on R&B albums like Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, uh, singles like The Silhouettes Get a Job, which scared the hell out of my parents. But as long as, I can, <laughs> as long as I continued to accept the Kinston Trio records, I was in good shape. Right. But you, you made a mention, Shane. yeah, you That's made a, a you made a, a a great comment on one of the on one of the folk rewinds about the beautiful voice quality of Glenn Yarborough and the Limelighters. Mm -hmm. Such a spectacular voice he had. And that's what I think is really recognizable in those old clips. As bad as they are, you know, sort of old school visually, the sound was really oh. phenomenal. The harmonies were unbelievable. And it's so cool that kids back then were just so into vocal harmonies and they and that's what they were attempting on street corners whether it be in one neighborhood or another neighborhood that was a way to stand out whether you know you were trying to get a deal at motown or whether you were a, a kingston trio yeah. it's like perfecting those harmonies is that something that you guys worked hard on getting right your harmonies no no just came naturally no no, no. It, it it really we weren't good <laughs> that wasn't our strong suit. Okay. No, we had when we had eighty-five takes and we could have the time to do it. That's great, and we did it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, I mean, there, for example, you didn't have to be so nice. Wouldn't have been nearly as cool if not for the assistance of Henry Diltz, oh, yeah, the famous Henry. photographer. Henry Diltz was in the studio with you when you did that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and Henry. See, Henry's background was in a, a group called the uh, Modern Folk Quartet, mm. which was a, a a very advanced vocal group. They mm -hmm. they they they're really really good. And you mentioned uh, Hal Blaine earlier. Did you ever use session musicians in any of your recordings? Uh, the when the Love and Spoonful did a soundtrack to a movie that was and the and this is Francis Coppola and he wants some uh he wants some um orchestral type music and uh so what movie that was requires that? that requires uh, 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 studio musicians that, you know, requires people who play things that the spoonful didn't play. So mm. so on that project, yes, but no, I got a chance to work with Hal Blaine when I did Cass Elliott's album. Oh. Uh, 
Uh, but, but not, uh, yeah, the, 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 no, no, we didn't cheat. We no. didn't cheat. Well, no, but I don't know if it's cheating. It's just, I think it's a... It's me- cheating. Okay, all right, all right. You guys on the East Coast, yeah, I love yeah. it when they're going to do... cheating. They're, you know, come they're on. doing a Beach Boys album, and the Beach Boys come in to play, and, and Brian says, no, you go home. We got this handled. No, I know you're saying it's cheating, but like a lot of guys signed deals, and they thought that they were going to get to play. They'd show up with their instrument, and then they'd be told, no, that's not how this works. So I think they... Right. That you know their their intentions were good, but they had their way of. Luckily, I didn't have those idiot producers right. to deal. So I, I had Eric Jacobson, who was on our side very much. That's your guy. Where did so, you record? Well, uh, we recorded wherever we could. It is not, you know, a lot of the the uh, pr- uh, preconceptions about rock and roll stuff in the early 60s it's more or less based on a framework of almost 1970 because Mm. at 65 was really it was just a different world It, it had not exploded uh frampton comes alive had not sold a platinum album that mm-hmm. that had never happened mm-hmm. uh you know so the whole business was becoming much bigger mm-hmm. and uh it, we adapted to it pretty good right <laughs> oh, i think amazing i'm i'm watching on youtube you guys were seemed to be a sullivan favorite you were on ed sullivan a lot and when you sang darlin be home soon there's an orchestra behind you can you tell us the story of how that came to be well um we had now done you're a big boy now the movie Mm -hmm. and one of the things that happened as a result of that was that a song i'd written uh, uh, got an orchestral chart, which had never happened before. Uh, and uh, we had uh, wonderful uh, uh, input from from our the producers of that project were different. that Eric Jacobson was involved, but there were other people that were uh, that were also uh, involved in that. And then did, did they come up with the idea that when you perform this on Sullivan, you should have a an orchestra? You know, I think what it was, was that we had the charts now. Okay. I think that was key. Here oh we were God. with the charts. And here's the Ed Sullivan show. And when it's on the record, it has that chart on it. So let's get these guys. Wow. Let's get Fathead Newman. I mean, so that now, was is an that, is amazing. That... that was an amazing band. Yeah. I mean, but is that head that... was in that band uh, was was playing that day. Really? Uh, oh, I'm 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 afraid I may be a little late for me to come up with the names. But boy, oh boy, that was really a first class. Uh, they were, you know, jazzers uh, that would oh. uh, do sessions. So that's ahead of when the Moody Blues were performing with an orchestra that seemed like that was a hybrid that maybe was you guys were on the cutting edge. That we were on what? The cutting edge of like, you know, rock and roll music playing with or- orchestral uh, with orchestral backing. 
ahead of the Moody Blues even. I'm not sure what year that happened. Can't really take credit for that, but... I think you ought to. I mean, I'd say go ahead and give yourself... What are your thoughts on the current state of the music industry, like the streaming and the different delivery systems and all that, John? Um, I have lost track completely. I am no longer anything like an authority Mm -hmm. on how music comes to be. I literally, like me and Arlen Roth made a lovely album during the COVID period. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had what we considered to be a lovely project. And uh, shit, I forgot where I was going with this. Was that the one where you're doing versions of your songs, folk uh, acoustic versions of your songs? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty much a a two guy a two guy two guitar project that that had a bass player and a drummer occasionally and we also had the Mona Lisa twins which is a a, a marvelous duo that uh, you guys will have the opportunity eventually to research because i think they're really an important uh, band these are two uh, two uh, twin sisters, and uh, they are remarkable. Their father was a producer in Vienna going back uh, 30 years. So they just were able to start making records pretty much. Anyway, a remarkable a couple of uh, fel- uh, folks who, who really helped uh, with stuff like background so when you when you went ahead and and made this album over over the pandemic, how did you go about putting it out there and letting the world know about it? Um, well, uh, you know that just eventually we found a record company that would uh, that would uh, accept it. Uh, we'd already started, so we knew pretty much what it was, and I think anybody that was remotely interested could hear what 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 it was there wasn't much of a mystery to it so mm-hmm. uh, i think that helped now i recently watched a, a clip from wild honey show where you're outlining the origin story of summer in the city can can you can you share that with us how that song was written well my brother wrote a song called summer in the city and uh it had a fabulous chorus and uh, so I started taking the song apart a little bit and, and rewrote the uh, beginning. But his chorus was so good that I didn't want to screw with that. So that But at Night It's a Different World on, that's my brother. Oh, okay. And, and then, yes, and then there's that funny little segment, bing, 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 that little section there. Yeah. Well, that was a thing that Steve Boone had been playing on the black keys of the piano for <laughs> months. He'd been playing it. We'd get in the studio, and while we're waiting to do something else, we'd hear bing, 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 bing. And we go, Stephen, <laughs> that's not a song. That's it's it's not a chorus. It's not a verse. It's so a, it's please, a you know. It's well, of course, what happened was we finish. Uh, we 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 finish the, uh, you know. But at night, it's a different world. And we're looking, gee, you know, there could be some kind of a little musical interlude. Stephen goes, 
Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> we go, oh, no, it fits beautifully. <laughs> That's awesome. So in sales, I'm going to take a guess at this, and I could be wrong. Uh, Welcome Back, Cotter was the biggest hit, and then Summer in the City. Yeah, and, and remember, Welcome Back is, you know, these things get conflated, but that was in 1976. That was a long wow. time after The Spoonful was long gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was actually, I will share with you that it was a tremendous uh, victory for me because I had almost been dropped by Warner Brothers. Wow. You were, in other words, you were commissioned to write that song, right? Yes. But it's the kind of lyric that is useful, and that so that song is is continuously pulled back out because it's the perfect mm-hmm. whatever for whoever you're welcoming back, right? You know, the key thing there was I begged them not to make me have the word cotter. Thank you. <laughs> in the lyric. It doesn't rhyme with anything. It, it immediately shrunk the scope of the song right 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 now it can be for no, that's perfect it wouldn't have been a hit probably it's a multi-purpose song mm-hmm. and uh people can blare it whenever somebody's you know coming back from prison what what have you it just works it just works it always works so what else would you like <laughs> it's like you have a yellow you have a yellow uh, ribbon and then you have uh john sebastian and everyone is ready to come home so what else should people be on the lookout for you where can they find you and where can they enjoy what you're doing where can you find me yeah there's i know there's johnsebastian.com and that's got a lot of great stuff a lot of great content yeah and uh i'll be honest with you i really don't care much about any of that (laughs) uh what do you think of social media john I know. Boy, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to have more than one? Okay. I think someone's texting him right now. He's being texted as we speak. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Wow. You could read us the text if you care to. Oh, come on. Now what's happening? The dog wants to go back out. The dog wants to go back out. Yeah. He left something out there. Hi. You've reached 911. Ah, come on. (laughs) Catherine or John. Thank you very much. Checking on the proper mailing address mm, yeah. for you. Uh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. How close did she get? That's, Bye. That's Johanna Hall. She sounds very nice. Yeah. Uh, no, Johanna's very nice. And but she's let me also, know which address is accurate because we're about to stop by. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, we want to thank you so much for being with us. You can go to johnsebastian.com and you can go to Spotify and you can find that new record that he just made with uh, Arlen. Arlen Roth, yes. And it's wonderful. And it's called called John and Arlen Explore the Spoonful Songbook. Do I have that right? That's right. Yeah, and it's- That's right. Absolutely glorious. And you you recorded that at at home in, in, in a home studio? No, no, no. I, uh, all of that recording was done at a studio. Okay. Uh, what happened was we already had the basic tracks when the COVID lockdown happened. Mm-hmm. And we both went back to our, uh, well, in my case, I simply continued on at the same studio because it's blocks from my house. Okay. Uh, and Arlen has his own little operation. So, 
what we began to do was pretty much what people would frequently ask of us before we did this project together, which was, okay, so we've got a pretty good take here with uh, uh, Larry uh, whatever, and the only thing it really needs is a little more tinkly stuff. And so, Arlen, uh, if you just add that and then send that to us. So, you know, and so now we were doing it for ourselves we were simply saying okay well in this case it's really better nude <laughs> and then then there's be another thing where we go oh no no well we the auto harp is gonna fill this thing out wonderfully so let's let's do that mm. so you just build layers i love that all right, well, we're going to thank you so much for being with us, and I'm going to read our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediapathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and write us a review using words like sensational and illuminating. You can also talk about us on social media, send a link to your closest friends and form a podcast discussion group. You may also want to sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We are giving away cool stuff all the time and we want you to have it. We want to thank our wonderful guest, John Sebastian. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.